Welcome to Backyard Oasis, a podcast designed by and for older adults living in the beautiful Pioneer Valley of Western Massachusetts and produced in the tech studios at Greenfield Community College in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Backyard Oasis reaches out to older adults who seek knowledge to help them live more thoughtfully, healthily, and happily who hope to inspire others with their ideas and who serve their communities in the interest of the greater good. We hope you join us frequently in our pleasant backyard oasis for wide-ranging conversations with a diversity of people who are growing older and want to talk about it. Welcome to Backyard Oasis. Hi, this is Dennis Lee. My guest today is Bruce Landon. He was a hockey goalie. He was a hockey executive. He was a hockey owner. And he's even even an author of a book called The Puck Stops Here. We're going to talk about the book, Bruce, and how that came about. But I don't know, for some reason, I thought I'd like to go back uh, to Canada with you (laughs) and, and figure out why... You became a goaltender. Going a long ways back, Dennis. Going back to my childhood, I, I really started because my brother—I had an older brother, three years older—and he was a hockey player and dragged me out in the driveway when I was about four years old and started shooting frozen tennis balls at me. And uh, I sort of became a goaltender because of him. He wants—he needs somebody to shoot at other, other than a barn door. So I was his target, and that's how it all started. And from there, just a naturally progression through youth hockey and on through the ranks of junior hockey, et cetera. I always thought if anybody was a goaltender and they let somebody actually take a shot at their head— they had to be a little nuts, and I heard later when I talked <laughs> about pro folks that they always said goaltenders were a little bit different. Do you think that's the case? I think in some cases a lot of the guys are. I always thought I was more sane than some that I knew about, but we all had our, I guess, any idiosyncrasies. But, you know, you, you it's sort of a unique profession to follow, and uh, I think what, what's challenging about it, not everybody could do it. So that's what made it interesting to me. So what do you remember about, do you remember the first time you actually were in a goal, actually in the goal in the first game? Absolutely. I was playing, uh, it was a church athletic league team and I was, uh, I was playing forward and I showed up one day and the goaltender, we were about eight years old at the time, the goaltender didn't show up. And the reason I remember it is I had a pair of old green goalie pads I had to put on and that was the first game I ever played in goal and I played well enough that they didn't want the other kid to play anymore and I ended up playing the rest of the games in the entire season, so. Now, I want to ask you about fear or pressure, okay? Is there fear about being hurt? No, no. No no fear. I don't think if if you're going to be an athlete, pro athlete, you can't let fear enter into it. Uh, uh, Pressure, yes. No question about it. I started feeling the pressure when I was probably 12 or 13 years old because not to be pompous but I was recognized as being pretty pretty good goaltender and they thought I had a chance probably to go on and play junior hockey didn't know at the time that pro hockey was was going to happen but so you start the pressure starts building when you're that young because you know there's certain aspirations and uh, certain pressure on you to, to to succeed and I think you put a lot on yourself but I, I certainly you always have pressure on you no question about it. Well, I know you played uh, junior hockey. You were selected in 1969 in the draft by the L.A. Kings. You played in Springfield three years. Uh, I think that's when I met you. Uh, 
they're crazy in Springfield and they know their hockey. What, what do you remember about being in Springfield? And uh, they, when I first saw you, I think it was at the Coliseum in West Springfield, right? That which was right. the old barn, but it was a great place for hockey because you had what five thousand people in it. it sounded like ten thousand. The seats made noise. It was a great atmosphere. What do you remember about that? Well, you remember, you know, you go back. Yeah, that was 1969. I turned pro. I was drafted by the LA Kings, as you mentioned. I actually wasn't supposed to go to Springfield. I had a very good training camp, and I was supposed to originally go right to Los Angeles. But uh, I went home. My the, the NHL general manager told me I'd made the NHL club right right out of junior hockey, which was pretty unheard of back in '69. So he said, "Go home, pack your stuff, meet us in Toronto. You're going to fly out to LA." So I went home. My folks had a party for me with my brother and a few friends, and I got a call about two o'clock in the morning. Said, "Well, we've changed our mind." We want you to get a little seasoning and going to send you to Springfield, Massachusetts. I was born and raised in Kingston, Ontario. I had I, no idea where I was going, where Springfield was. I looked it up a little bit, and I got on a bus and headed from Kingston. Instead of getting on a plane going to Los Angeles, I got on, on a bus and went from Kingston down to Springfield, Massachusetts, and uh, stayed in a rickety old motel uh, down in West Springfield, but got my start in Springfield in 1969. And, you know, always remember your first game. It's in the, like you said, the old barn the coliseum the home of eddie shore and a lot of great hockey players have gone through there but uh, it was a it was a barn for sure and the dressing rooms were old and rickety but it was my first pro game and you remember your first pro game i was fortunate enough to to have a six nothing shutout my first pro game so that was memorable certainly so you never forget your first your first professional hockey game I would think uh, with 6 nothing, they took the pressure off you a little bit. Never. The pressure's there until the game's over, Dennis. At least for me. I, I just didn't handle pressure real well. Right. And, well, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. How old were you when you talk about, about being I was 19. I, when I came to Springfield, I was 19. My first pro game was in October, October 11th. It's funny, a couple of days ago, 54 years ago, as a matter of fact. But I was 19 years old and turned 20 on October 5th. So I was just a 20-year-old when I got my pro start. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of interesting things happened in Springfield, major brawls and fights and all kinds of things. Uh, people can read the book to find out about there's a famous fight. Right. You even got arrested, Bruce. Got arrested. Do I look like a guy who would get arrested, Dennis? You don't even look good in stripes, <laughs> Bruce. You really don't. <laughs> But uh, but it was a crazy. It, it was, was a crazy. A, yeah, thing. It was just People, a crazy the whole brawl. Place went nuts. Yeah. yeah, crazy brawl, and the police got involved. And uh, the I was living with our team trainer at the time, and uh, he got he got sort of taken away by a couple of the cops in West Springfield because he was trying to break up a fight that was in the penalty box. And I wasn't playing that game, but I was in full full uniform, sitting on the back of the bench, and I jumped in to try and help my roommate out, the trainer. And next thing I knew, a couple of cops had grabbed me and dragged me down the hallway, and. Uh, I asked the one cop to let go of my shoulder because I was coming off shoulder surgery, and we let go. I drilled him with a left, caught him in the chin, and, <laughs> and then I got arrested for assault and battery on a police officer and disturbing the peace. And uh, it was it was it was. It was going to be very tough because at the time I was trying to get my green card and yeah, yeah. Uh, to move down here. I'd met my, became my wife. But uh, so I had a great lawyer and he said, let's just wait it out. And we waited out and waited out. Finally, we got a judge who threw the whole case out. All I had to do was pay for the police officer's uniform that I ripped off him when I was in the fight with him. So mm -hmm. I got lucky. No record, no record. I never thought of you, Bruce Landon, as being on America's Most Wanted. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I just don't think of you that way. Oh, you're in the wrong post office. <laughs> Let me, let me check. Turn that way. I want to see your profile. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it with this. Uh, so in 1973, you end up with the Whalers. 
okay, right. which is the World Hockey Association. Right. Were you there that very first year of the Whalers? Yes, I was one of the original Whalers, and I had played in the LA Kings organization for three years, and I had a really good first year. Uh, in fact, I thought I was going to go up for sure the next year at the National Hockey League, and then in training camp, I tore my thumb all apart. And then, and so I played another year in Springfield. Then the third year, I struggled a little bit, and the the WHA started up, and I got a call from the general manager, a fellow by name Jack Kelly, uh, and it told me about the WHA. And a lot of people are skeptical about the, whether the league was even going to get off the ground. But at that time, there were some pretty good hockey players: Bobby Hull, Ted Green, a number of other guys jumping from the National Hockey League. And when they offered me my contract. Uh, to join the Whalers, they offered me about three times the money I was making to play in the American Hockey League. So I jumped at it, and uh, I had five great years with the Whalers. I was one of the original guys to play, to sign, and uh, had five good years, and uh, it was probably the best thing in my career I could have done at the time because I made a little more money and was able to settle down with my wife and mm -hmm. raise the kids, and things were good. I want to talk about, uh, you talked about not having good luck with pressure. And I've always been fascinated by that. In other words, you go into, well, even in Springfield, people come in, the place is buzzing. Uh, I mean, there's pressure when you walk in, you almost can feel it on a, on, a, on a big game. But then you go to Hartford, it's a bigger arena. It's like really for real. It looks for real. Right. What is that like? Uh, and I think I asked you one day over lunch. I'm not sure, but I think I asked you something about... Um, pressure and you said you were afraid sometimes when you were when you were actually waiting to actually go and, and, and play the game. Did I get it right? Well, I, my, in my situation, a little bit different because I always felt like I was fighting for a job. Uh, I never felt comfortable that I I was going to be able to stick around, make a full season of, or a full career out of it. So I always put a lot more pressure on myself than probably I should have. But there's always the pressure of, you know, uh, number one, not letting your teammates down, not letting your coach down, not letting the fans down, and not letting yourself down and, and being able to play up your expectations and I think that's you, you build the pressure inside and, and some athletes uh, they deal with it they, you know they seem to be able to deal with it better than others and you know there are some players in, both in all kinds of sports that I know used to throw up before games they were, the pressure would get to them so much I never got to that extent but I used to worry all the time about uh, am I good enough and I always had that doubt even though I carved out a, a great junior career and a, a start of a good pro career how about uh, you mentioned your wife your wife Marsha who's a really neat lady. I've known her as long as I've right. known you, I think. Uh, but what's that like on a home life? I've always <laughs> wondered about that. Like you have a pressurized job. If you have a good day at the rink, okay, maybe it's a little better coming home, but how about when the puck goes through your legs and you have a wife and you have to keep her happy? Well, Marsha never once uh, saw me make a save or never once saw me let a goal in. And that's a very true story. As soon as the puck crossed the red line, she would turn and start talking to the people next to her, and her re her reaction would be based on what the crowd did. Uh, she could tell by the crowd whether they made the save or they scored a goal or whatever. She never once my whole career that she saw when she attended the games ever saw me make a save or let a goal in. And it's something we talk about even to this day. But, you know, a lot of athletes say you try to you leave the game at the rank when you go home or at the field or whatever the sport may be. I never found that the case. I, I took it home with me, and uh, you know sometimes it was ugly to be honest with you. Especially if you had a bad night, your team had lost, uh, you weren't in the right frame of mind. You just couldn't. I just couldn't block it out. I, I carried it with me too long, actually. Yep. I well, I think that's a big part. Of, uh, the mental part of the game in any sport. 
maybe any job is more important than some of the tools, right? Right. I yeah. mean, making the save, but I mean, how you're where your head is when you go out there and afterwards. Well, it's, it's getting yourself mentally prepared. And then, you know, after that game's over, and if you're playing the next night or two nights later, you, you're sort of right back into the cycle again and getting ready again. So, right. How about now when you retired uh, from playing, which was what, about? Seven, 1977. 1977. So now, after being in the spotlight and being a guy that everybody counted on, you had to decide what to do with the rest of your life. So yeah. what happened during that transitional period? Well, I had gotten injured in practice in December of 1977, and uh, I tore up my knee pretty good. And I'd had a lot of injuries. I've had two shoulders. I had shoulder surgery. I still have a pin in my shoulder. I had a torn Achilles tendon. I had, you know, uh, just a numb, too many injuries in a short career. And when I, when I got hurt in December of 1977, I had two young kids. I was living in a nice house in West Springfield. And I was playing for Springfield at the time, and uh, the owner, George Leary, said, you know, we can have surgery, try to make a comeback, or we, if you want, I'll give you a job in the front office. And, uh, you know, it was a quick decision for me. I was tired of the injuries, and um, I, I just knew I'd, my days as a goaltender were getting maybe limited because of my injuries, not because of talent, but because of my injuries. And so I decided to go right into the front office, and he basically gave me a pad of paper and a pencil and said, okay, you're in charge of group sales. And away I went. Yeah. You know? Well, you've always been a good salesman. And before that, I don't know if it was right then, but I, you sold radio time too. I that we was, worked uh, together at a station. Yeah, that was after that. That was yeah. after I retired, yeah. 1979. Yeah. So, when what the, was it like, Doug? Was it was it tough making that transition? Well, or did it happen uh, easily? For it you? was for some reason. I found it easy. Uh, I when I was a player, I went out and did a lot of a lot of players don't like to do public speaking. I I used to take every public speaking engagement that the the team would give me. Uh, I enjoyed going out and speaking to Rotary clubs, youth hockey banquets, you name it. So I was I wasn't afraid to get in front of people and so when the job came along to be group sales and then director of marketing and sales going out and speaking to somebody about advertising or sponsorships or, or ticket sales it, it, it was it came easy to me mm -hmm. and uh, and I enjoyed it and I was able to get you know pretty good at it where it uh, sort of was able to make a niche in my career at it until I got promoted eventually to general manager yep and then what happened when you were moving along you ended up actually getting a team of people together to buy a franchise and then you were a boss. Well, then what happened, just backing up a little bit, in, in 1982, I was named general manager. And then in 1994, the owner, Peter Cooney, decided he wanted to sell the franchise to a group in Worcester, and there was not going to be any hockey in Springfield. And uh, the true story is it was uh, in April of 94, and a TV-22 stuck a microphone in front of me and said, Bruce, what are you going to do now? Hockey's leaving Springfield. And me and my big mouth and not the money to, to buy back it up at the time <laughs> I said I'm going to see if I can keep hockey alive in Springfield and my good friend and former and eventually business owner Wayne Lachance was watching it on TV when he saw the interview and called me up the next day he said what's going on and I told him he said well let's see what we can do so him and I got together put an ownership group together and in two weeks we formed an ownership group and renamed the renamed the hockey club and uh, presented our uh, made a presentation to the league and were awarded a franchise two weeks later. So in two weeks, we were able to raise a million dollars and and buy the and buy a new franchise. So from what you're telling us now, you really hadn't thought this out. Was this really that serendipitous? In other words, you you just said it. I just you said it. I had no it? hadn't even thought about it other than. 
you know, it was a little bit selfish because the team was being sold. There's no hockey in Springfield. My whole life had been in hockey and in management, and uh, I had to, you know, had to think of the family and the wife and the kids. And you know, I knew I could do some other things. I off- was offered a couple other jobs, but I really wanted to stay in hockey. But we didn't have a franchise, so the only way it was going to work is that I was able to keep a franchise alive, and uh, we were able to do that and got the Falcons started in '94 and uh, and and did very well with it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious when you became a management person. You had been dealing with general managers from L.A. or right. the Whalers. So you must know some good people and some people you don't like the way that you were treated. <laughs> right. So how did that influence your life, the way you dealt with players coming from your background? I think, Dennis, I had... I always, and I hope to this day, I've always tried to treat people the way you want to be treated. And uh, and with hockey players, we had some really good players come through Springfield that uh, I sort of knew were going to make it and make some good money in the National Hockey League. And you treat them the same way as you treat the young player on a tryout who's uh, hoping to make a career out of hockey. And you treat them with respect. And you're, and I think if you can ask any player that came through Springfield when I was general manager there, I was honest with them. You know, there was no BS. I was honest with them all the time about you know their situation and and we had went through a lot of NHL uh, affiliation so I was dealing with a lot of different uh, NHL management people and uh, some you, you came to see the way they they operated and you, you sort of took the good with the bad and there were some I didn't like the way they operated and there were some that I, I have so much respect for I stay in touch uh, the, to this day with mm-hmm. I always wonder what you learned and what you take with you to a new position I think that's uh, really, really kind of fascinating. I was thinking about you, and I thought, you know, I never heard anybody say anything bad about you, really negative about you, ever. And then I thought, well, there must be a few hockey referees, (laughs) Bruce, that... uh, have a few comments about you. Yeah, I was. Uh, I'm a mild and easygoing guy, but I lose my temper. I used to lose my temper once in a while on the ice, and you know, the first person around to yell at. If you can't yell at your teammates, because they can yell yell back at you. And I had a, I had a couple run-ins with officials. Probably the worst one was when I got thrown out of a game when my brother came in from Canada to watch me play, and uh, they called a goal which hadn't the puck didn't go in the net, and the goal the the referee went to check with a goal judge behind me and I took the net net right off its moorings and pinned the referee up against the boards and he threw me out of the game so I watched the rest of the game sitting with my brother up in the Bruce, stands. I am shocked. <laughs> I didn't hear that story. I don't think that one's in the book, Dennis. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, am, I am just, ladies and gentlemen, he's just fallen off the pedestal. <laughs> I've had him on a pedestal for years. <laughs> Unbelievable. You no, guys set the bar a little higher, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a great story. Well, um, I, I want to talk ab- about the book, and I'm really fascinated. And one of the reasons that I had you on, just, not just because I know you and not just because I was involved in watching Springfield hockey or watching you, but the fact that uh, a guy who wasn't a star star, I mean, you weren't Bobby Hall, he might write a book or somebody else, but you all of a sudden had this urge to write a book. Well, I, I didn't really have an. I'll tell you how the whole story developed. Is my daughter Tammy 
uh, and and her and I were sitting on. I had retired as a player and retired retired management rather as as I had retired 2017, and I was sitting talking to her one day and uh, sitting having a martini on my on my deck, and I just got talking telling stories to her about my growing up in Canada and some of the things in hockey, and she just looked and Tammy was a, a grant writer for for uh, Clark School for Hearing and Speech and was a, an English major, and she had said, Dad, why don't you write a book? And I said, Tam, come on, I can't write a book. Who's going to read what I have to say? And she no, really, you're telling some interesting stories. Just put it down on paper. I'll edit it for you. Don't worry about, you know, spelling or structure or anything. You just start writing things down on paper and let me edit it for you. And I said, and she's come on, try it. So I said, all right. I started, I sat at my computer and, you know, literally five, ten minutes at a time. And I started to develop a bit of a concept. And then, unfortunately, Tammy came down with cancer and got very, very sick. And when she got sick and I knew she wasn't going to be able to edit the book, I sort of put it on the back burner. I just said, you know, I don't want to do this without Tammy. And uh, as you know, Dennis, she got very sick and, <clears throat> excuse me, eventually passed away at a very young age. And uh, I lost all motivation. But uh, uh, quick story is and very true is uh, Tammy was very, very sick with cancer and was going through chemo. And she, uh, she said to me, Dad, do me a favor, please finish the book. And uh, so what can you do? Uh, so I said, for Tam, I got to do it. So sat down at the computer and uh, was able to get Ron Shamelis of the Springfield newspaper to be an editor for me. And I sent him some rough drafts and he loved it. And he says, we're going to do this. And so over a course of about almost two years, um, I worked on the book and got, got it published and uh, and it became a, it sold very, very well. And when uh, Tammy was passing, uh, uh, I made sure she knew that her dad had finished the book. That's amazing. How about the, the actual process of sitting and thinking of what you're going to put in the book? Did you find it depressing, happy, sad? I mean, did you get very introspective when you started thinking about things you would want to tell other people? Well, I, I decided that if I was going to write a book, there had to be something There had to be something in it that, pe why why would people want to read it? And so I, when I sent some of the rough drafts out to Ron, who then shared it with the publisher, they thought I was on the right, sort of the right direction. And But since I'd never been a writer, I wasn't sure in what order to put things in. So I decided to just do it basically from my childhood with um, some stories about we're growing up in Canada, so people knew, you know, I wasn't born with a silver, you know, silver spoon in my mouth. My father was an alcoholic. My mother was a seamstress. Uh, we had a rough childhood growing up. Thank God I had an older brother that kept his eye on me. But things weren't easy at times. And uh, I tell the story in the book, and I get a little raw in the book sometimes about things that people didn't know about me. And I think that's one of the things when the book finally uh, got published and people read it, they they were amazed at some of the stories I was able to tell, very true stories about my growing up in Canada and my junior hockey career and my pro career. And I, I sort of tried to dig down into some of the areas that people didn't know about Bruce Landon. And that's why the book is called The Puck Stops Here, but it also, the subtitle is My Not-So-Minor League Life. So I didn't want people to think it was a hockey statistical book, that it was more in-depth than that. And, uh, and the book sold very, very well. Yeah, great stuff. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I was most surprised about that personal stuff from your early days. I anticipated you would talk about being a goaltender and a little bit about your background growing up, but, but you got into some really raw stuff. And I, I read the book in one night, okay? I got it, and I just kept reading it. But I, that's the one thing. I, I, I remember putting the book down and thinking, 
wow, I can't, I know Bruce, but I can't believe he put right. all this stuff in there. And it wasn't pleasant stuff. And I, I'm very surprised you decided to share all that stuff. Well, it was, it, it just started coming out of me. I guess when I started, I probably didn't have no intention of doing that. But I, again, I wanted to make the book interesting to not just hockey people, because I had to reach a broader audience if it was going to sell. And all the proceeds, as you know, Dennis, all the proceeds of the book go to the TJL Charitable Foundation, which my wife and I started on behalf of Tammy. Uh, so all the proceeds from uh, the book went to that. And I purposely stayed away from Amazon. I sold the book at private book signings, uh, at the library uh, signings, and um, did it all myself. And the only reason I did that is because I didn't want to share it with Amazon because all the proceeds were going to my daughter's foundation. So I want to make sure that we reap the benefits from it. And it was just recently, probably about six months ago, uh, my publisher said, Bruce, why don't you, you only got about 60, 70 books left uh, of your of your initial order. Why don't you put them on Amazon now and, and let's see what we can do with it. So that it's only there's only about 50 books remaining, I think, on Amazon um, because I want, again, I want all the money. And between my some fundraising events and the sale of my book, we've raised over $100,000 for my daughter's foundation. That's and uh, with a, a large portion yeah. of that going to Clark School for Hearing and Speech, where Tammy worked for 15 years. That, that's really incredible. I didn't know how much you sold, but I think they wanted you to maybe to do another book, right? Yeah, you, there's I was been talking to you a few weeks ago, months ago, right. right? They actually wanted you to do another one. Yeah, the publishers talked to me about writing a, a second book, but... You know, I just turned 74, and uh, I hope I got some years left if I want to write a book. But I think I think I'm one and done, Dennis. I've I've toyed with some ideas, but I think you know we had some success with the first book, and uh, and I wrote it for a purpose, and it was purposes because Tammy wanted me to write a book, and uh, and I wanted to raise some money after she passed, and I think we've accomplished our goals of of writing the book and raising a lot of money, and I think I have to leave it at that. Well, I think it really is special. Thank and you. I, I didn't know you made that much money from it. I had no idea. I knew that there was a lot. There were a lot of people that liked you from the Springfield hockey community, but I had no idea in numbers how many people would actually buy the book. Well, the book, I have to just to clarify, we'd also held some fundraising events, uh, comedy fundraisers for my daughter as well. We just had one recently, October 7th. So it was a combination of the sale of the book, proceeds of the book, and the comedy fundraisers that got us up to the 100000 But, uh, you know, writing a book was, was challenging, and I give all the credit to the world of people that do it for a living because I, I found I could do it at 5, 10, 15 minutes at a time and then I'd have to walk away from computer and I was you know deleting drafts and sending drafts and it was it was a good it was a, it was a little, it was fun once I get into it but I found it very very challenging one of the things that we wanted to do with backyard oasis was to help people that had a career and have to make transitions to another part of their life so as Bruce Landon the hockey player then the hockey manager, then the executive, and now the author. What would you say to somebody that wants to do something different, that they feel that they've got to do something in transition? Any any ideas that will help somebody well, just from your experience? Well, I, I've had, since I've been re retired six years now, it's, it's amazing. A lot of people ask how I enjoy retirement, and I tell people if you really love your job, like if you really love your job and you can find enough time to balance out other things in your life, whatever that may be, then why retire? Uh, but if you don't like your job and you've had enough of your job and it's time to retire, you have to find something to keep yourself busy and find a passion. And if it's a second career, that's great. If it's writing a book, whatever 
whatever it may be, but you have to find something that you're passionate about. If it, if once you get to that retirement age, something that motivates you to get up in the morning. And uh, I, I really think that's key. And I, I've seen too many friends of mine that have retired, and next thing you know, they're 10 o'clock sitting in Dunkin' Donuts having a coffee, waiting for lunch, and wait for their afternoon nap. That's not me. When I retired, I, I made a, a promise to my wife, if I put the television on before 4 o'clock in the afternoon, except for a Sunday, then I'm going to go find some work. And uh, it's been six years now, and I've never done it. So I, you have to find things to keep you busy, but find something that you're passionate about. Are you still looking for something to do? I'm. I'm been looking for some volunteer work, Dennis. To be honest with you, um, you know, I don't financially. I'm fine. It's. It's. Uh, I, I especially in the winter. My wife and I won't travel anymore. We've done a lot of traveling, uh, but we're not going to travel. So I, I need to find something this winter, um, and that's why I did start playing around with the second book because it's a nice winter project. But uh, if I'm not going to do the book, I'm. I'm going to get into some volunteer work, two or three days a week. Um, I'm just trying to. Decide what it is I want to do. I've I've been looking at a couple things, uh, uh, and I haven't re- really made up my mind yet. But uh, I'll find something and I'll stay busy. Mm-hmm. Before we go, I, I've got to just mention that uh, they named a street after you. It's called Bruce Landon Way. It's uh, right next to the Civic Center. And when I heard that, and I'm dead serious when I say this, I just smiled and I was so happy. I thought, wow to have a street named after you. In other words, not only did you have a career, but you people really felt that you, you did something. You were here, and I know you were a husband, you were a dad, but to have the greater community say, you really did something with your life and we're gonna memorialize you on a street sign, that made me feel good. Wow. And what, what, how about when that happened with you? What happened? How'd you find well, out about I, that? What I, was your reaction? I didn't know anything about it, to be totally honest with you, until somebody came to me and said, we're naming a street after you. And I said, what are you talking about? And there was a behind, without me knowing about it, there was a petition going around. And it was, it was primarily because I fought like a son of a gun to keep hockey alive in Springfield because it was going to leave two or three times. And I was able to keep finding ownership groups. Uh, they wanted to partner up with me. And so we worked hard to keep hockey there. And I think some people, diehard hockey fans, recognized it. And the, the mayor was tremendous to get behind it. And I'm, I'm honored and I'm humbled by it. Um, you know, I always thought that happened to people that died. So I guess maybe it's... Uh, Let me check. Your pulse. <laughs> Check my pulse, but uh, I was just humbled and honored, and I really didn't want to accept it at first. But I was convinced it was too late to say no. So um, I'm honored by it and very humbled to the fact that it's it's there. So. I just think that is wonderful. Thank you. I just I just smile, and every time I think about it, and a couple times I've gone by the sign and. It just makes, I feel good. Well, I got to tell you one quick story. Sure. I got two parking tickets on my own street. And <laughs> <laughs> I had pulled down uh, down the street one day to run into the Mass Mutual Center, and I was, it's, I think it's 10-minute park, and I was in there for 20 minutes, and there was a ticket on my car, and I was stupid enough to do it twice. And somebody said, why didn't you take it over and get it fixed? I said, no, that's not me. It's my own stupidity. I'll pay the, pay the fine, which I did. So. That is great. That's a great story unto yeah. itself. Bruce Landon, it's a pleasure to know you. The book is, give the title again. The Puck Stops Here, My Not-So-Mirely Life, available on Amazon. All right. If you're a hockey fan, and you don't have to be an incredible hockey fan. No. I mean, you can read it, and the stories are, are down to earth, and you'll enjoy it. And Bruce Landon, just glad I know you, and thanks so much for joining us on 
or for Backyard Oasis. Thanks, Dennis. Pleasure to be with you. This concludes today's podcast. We're always looking for new ideas, so feel free to reach out to Judy Raper, Associate Dean of Community Engagement at Greenfield Community College at 413-775-1819 if you have an idea you'd love to share. Special thanks to the creators of Backyard Oasis, Denise Schwartz, Chad Fuller, Dennis Lee, and Christine Copeland. Have a great day.